The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Can Team-Based Care and Novel Therapies Improve Outcomes in Moderate to Severe Pediatric Atopic Dermatitis? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash WVA 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Robert Sidbury from Seattle Children's Hospital in Seattle, Washington. Welcome to this educational activity on improving care in pediatric atopic dermatitis. We're going to talk today about team-based care and novel therapies and how they improve outcomes in specifically moderate to severe pediatric patients with atopic dermatitis. Let's hop right in and talk a little bit about some background with this disease. First and foremost, if you see pediatric patients, you see atopic dermatitis. Prevalence is estimated to be around 15 to 24% of children and 1 to 3% of adults. It's a chronic disease, relapsing and remitting in children. It evolves. It changes. I don't like to tell parents that kids are going to grow out of it, though they, for all intents and purposes, sometimes do. But the disease changes. Babies oftentimes have flexural involvement on the cheeks and chin, the extensor arms, whereas that same child five years later may have flexural involvement in the crooks of the elbows and the backs of the knees. But the burden of the symptoms is the thing that we really want to focus on because it can be profoundly impactful. Itch is the synchronon of this disease. If you make a diagnosis of atopic dermatitis and it doesn't itch, I would consider another diagnosis because unremitting itch is what is the real problem with this disease and can lead to a number of comorbidities, sleep disturbance, as you might imagine. Depression and anxiety are more recently identified comorbidities associated with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Atopic dermatitis oftentimes is linked to what's called the atopic march, and that's the idea that babies get eczema and food allergies, a little bit older kids get asthma, and older still kids and adults get allergic rhinitis. And there are indeed some kids who march in an orderly fashion through all of those throughout their lifespan. Other kids will just pick out one or the other of these atopic comorbidities, but they certainly keep company. There's typically a family history, and if you have one parent who has atopic dermatitis, that raises the risk by one and a half fold. Both parents have atopic dermatitis, that raises the risk by three to five fold. Up to 70% of patients with atopic dermatitis have family histories of atopic disease. It's important to remember, in part because that's a large number, but it's also important to remember that means 30% don't. So if you make a diagnosis of atopic dermatitis, don't let the absence of a family history take that off the table. Well, I've talked a little bit a moment ago about the distribution by age. In an infant, you'll see this facial involvement, the scalp, the ears. Sometimes I'm asked if a baby has eczema or cradle cap, and there's so much overlap at this age that I don't even really try to distinguish between the two. If it itches and bothers the baby, I treat it as if it's eczema, regardless of what I call it. In childhood, on the other hand, I still can get some facial involvement, but that's when you start to get that flexural involvement in the backs of the knees, crooks of the elbows. Then as in a teenager and adult, sometimes you can see a little bit more localized flexural involvement, hands, feet. You also see more head and neck involvement in that age as well. Well, typically we gestalt this diagnosis. It's so common that we just take a look and know immediately what it is, but not always. Atopic dermatitis is what I see more than anything else, and yet I still have patients where I'm just not sure. And that's when it's nice to be able to fall back on actual diagnostic criteria. The essential features, as I said before, itch. If it doesn't itch, consider other diagnoses. Typical morphology, relapsing history, the patterns that we've talked about. Those are the sorts of things that are key features in diagnosing atopic dermatitis. There are also important features when you're trying to build a case for a diagnosis, including early age of onset 
Triad, that atopic history, personal or family, that atopic triad in March that we talked about, IgAE hyperreactivity, xerosis, other associated features that are also helpful, but a little bit more nonspecific, but can help you build your case. Keratosis pilaris, that sort of bumpy skin on the outer arms we see. Pityriasis alba, post-inflammatory hypopigmentation. Hyperlinear palms, ichthyosis, periorbital changes. So there are a number of associated features that can help you make a diagnosis. Atopic dermatitis presents differently depending on skin type. Lighter skin, you're going to see more erythema. That's not as easy sometimes to see in darker pigmented patients. There, you're not only going to have more trouble sometimes seeing the erythema, but you're going to see some different morphologies from time to time, a more follicular or nummular morphology, prominent lichenification, dispigmentation. Mild atopic dermatitis generally responds very well to emollients and topical therapies, but indeed can have some of the same features of erythema, itch, and sometimes can even get infected and be more impactful. So with moderate atopic dermatitis, that's when the symptoms that we described in patients with mild disease are not only more extensive, but more impactful. Clinically, you're going to see more dull, red skin. You're going to see clearly swollen, raised, or thickened skin. You're going to see mild oozing or crusting potentially as patients with atopic dermatitis of any degree of severity can become infected. And this is when you're going to start thinking about the role of more intense therapy. These are kids who certainly had been on topical therapy, even with mild disease. And when they're starting to get to moderate disease, that's when you want to ask yourself whether or not those therapies are sufficient. Part of that question is whether or not those therapies are being used. It's really important to delve into the role of adherence with atopic dermatitis. Generally, they're fairly cumbersome treatment regimens with treatment, topical treatments, prescription, emollients, bathing is a key part. All of these things change depending on how severe a child is any given day. So these are all things that you want to explore when you're trying to decide whether or not to categorize a patient as moderate to severe and then potentially increase the intensity of their therapy. Severe disease is more of the same, just potentially more extensive, more body surface area involved, more intense erythema, more intense swelling, thickening of the skin, oozing, crusting, potentially present, and a widespread rash is always going to be part of the picture with patients with severe AD. And these are the kids who generally are losing a lot of sleep at night. These are kids who often have a good number of food allergies that are complicating mealtime. These are kids who are frequently not able to perform the sports they want to perform because overheating can make them itch or wear the clothes they want to wear because certain fabrics can irritate their skin. Wool is a good example. So these are kids who you really want to delve into how the disease is impacting their life, how the therapies they have are treating their disease, are they making it just a little bit better, or are they really changing the kids' lives in ways that make their lives better? And finally, are they using those therapies safely? Because topical therapies can have side effects too, and these are all things that need to be explored as we think about more intense therapy. There are ways to assess severity of atopic dermatitis in a more objective way. Clinical trials tend to use objective validated measurements such as these listed here. The easy score is an eczema area and severity index, and you can see the numbers there, mild 1.1 to 7, moderate 7.1 to 21, and severe 21.1 to 50. These are numbers that you can certainly learn to calculate. There are ways to easily access this sort of thing online. However, I don't know that the vast majority of dermatologists outside the context of clinical trials are calculating easy scores on their patients. The POEM is another index which is 
is not used as often in the United States as it is in Europe. And there it actually is used in clinical setting outside of clinical trials, much more than is done with any of these in the United States. So that is possible. But again, most of these, including the PO scoride, the SCORAD, these are all validated tools used in clinical trials that you can use, you can learn, you can document, and that's wonderful if you do, but you certainly don't have to. We'll talk about other ways to document severity in just a moment. Other tools that are not necessarily indices of mild, moderate, to severe disease, like the EASY or the SCORAD, things like quality of life, critical to document, absolutely critical. Now, you can use a tool like this and come up with a score, and that's going to help you when you're trying to get medications approved. But you can also just write down in your note that, yes, my patient is losing sleep. Yes, my patient has had skin infections. Yes, my patient has been on medicine A, B, C, and D and is still having symptoms. These are all sorts of things that you can document to try and justify any additional medication that you might want to use. Similarly, document the itch. You can use an itch score such as this VAS that we're talking about here, or you can just describe in your own language the extent to which this child is itching and how the therapies are helping or not. This is one that I do think you should learn. The Investigator Global Assessment Tool is zero to four point scale going from clear to severe, clear being no signs of inflammation, perhaps some post-inflammatory change, but no itching, no crusting, no scabbing, all the way to severe where there's marked erythema that we've talked about, deep, intense papillation and induration, and widespread disease, potentially with oozing and crusting. And then there are steps in between. And here's what you need to remember. First of all, this is a relatively easy scale to incorporate into your practice. And second of all, you have to realize that if you're talking about patients with moderate to severe disease, you're going to have to document a three or a four on this scale. You can say in your own language, I believe this patient is severe, and that's fine, but you will do much better by your patient if you say, I believe this patient is severe, they have an investigator global assessment score of four. I believe this patient is moderate, they have an investigator global assessment score of three. If your patient is documented to have anything less than that on an IgA, they are not going to be perceived as moderate or severe. And therefore, drugs that are approved for moderate to severe patients are unlikely to be approved for use. Well, sleep burden is probably the easiest thing to document. It's probably the hardest thing to have and to experience as a patient with atopic dermatitis, but it is universal amongst patients with moderate to severe disease. Ask about it. Parents may say, oh my, yeah, they, they sleep through the night, but they wake up looking much more inflamed, much more excoriated, much more open, sometimes even bloody sheets when they get up, even if they've been able to sleep through the night. More often, patients have trouble getting to sleep or early awakening. We find sometimes, even with patients with moderate to severe disease. During waking hours when they're distracted, other things going on, they're able to keep things to a dull roar and stay under relatively good control. But when they go to sleep, number one, they're tired. Fatigue is stress and stress is triggering for atopic dermatitis. Number two, they no longer have distractions. It's really just them and their itch when they lay down to go to sleep. So this can be a incredibly challenging time of day for patients and parents with atopic dermatitis. So always ask about the sleep burden. Here you see the study here that just shows the potential impact of very bad atopic dermatitis include in terms of difficulty falling asleep. You can see those odds ratios there, early morning awakening, and then odds of nightmares with very bad AD you know, being an odds ratio of 2.19 there. So this is something you should ask about. It's incredibly impactful for our patients. Well, if 
uh, patient is losing sleep, then certainly his parents are too. As we've said, patients with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis lose 2.1 hours of sleep a night, their parents 1.9. It's a family disease. This slide here depicts the results from an international cross-sectional web-based survey of nearly 1,500 parents and caregivers of children aged six months to six years with atopic dermatitis. And they looked at the mean DFI score, this family impact score, greater than 10, representing moderate to high alteration in quality of life. And this was reported in nearly half of those children who had mild AD, over half certainly of those with moderate, and nearly 80% of those children who had severe AD. So this is a family impact survey, which is showing nearly four out of five kids with severe AD have what's perceived to be a moderate to high alteration in quality of life for the patient and the family. So be aware that atopic dermatitis is a family disease. Well, let's talk a little bit about pathogenesis because this is where all of this trouble comes from. For many years, there's been this question of whether atopic dermatitis was a so-called outside-in disease or an inside-out disease, getting at the fact that is the primary problem is the egg, as it were, located in the epidermis, a faulty barrier that then triggers inflammatory problems inside? Or is it a primary immunodeficiency or immune dysregulation that then triggers barrier defects? And I wouldn't say that that question is answered absolutely definitively. However, at this point, it's pretty clear that the barrier defects, we've learned so much about the filaggrin gene and its role in maintaining epidermal barrier integrity. It just seems as though barrier defects are if not the, then a very primary part of the original sin, if you will, of atopic dermatitis. And that barrier leads to abnormal scratching, opening from paritis, therefore transepidermal water loss increases, so there's dryness, therefore allergens that are on the skin can get in, therefore infections that are on the skin can get in. So that barrier defect is a huge problem, which then seems to elicit an immune response characterized by this Th2 type of inflammation. Well, what does that mean? Th2 inflammation includes cytokines such as those you see here, in particular IL-4 and IL-13, critical players in atopic inflammation, TSLP, IL-33, IL-25. The one down there that you see, IL-31, is sometimes called the itch cytokine. So important is it in the symptoms of itch that are perceived in atopic dermatitis and indeed other conditions. So this sort of feedback inflammatory loop in atopic dermatitis is what's taking place and what we're trying to interrupt with treatment. Now let's take a closer look at the underlying pathophysiology of atopic dermatitis with this short video clip. Let's talk a little bit about the role of specialty advanced practice providers in atopic dermatitis. It's a very, very common condition. There aren't enough dermatologists, certainly not enough pediatric dermatologists to take care of all of the atopic dermatitis that is out there. Pediatricians are certainly the first line of defense along with family care doctors, but we have certainly benefited from the involvement of advanced practice providers in atopic dermatitis as well. Dermatology APPs, including nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, we have one of each working in my division, both of whom are absolute atopic dermatitis experts. And what do they do? They help take care of this sort of Venn diagram of issues that arise in patients with atopic dermatitis. 
They can assist in comprehensive disease management, multidisciplinary care, as we've talked about. Patients with atopic dermatitis may well have a pulmonologist if they've got asthma. They may well have an allergist. They may well have a gastroenterologist if they've got eosinophilic esophagitis. So dermatology APPs, in addition to primarily diagnosing and taking care of this disease, can help manage comprehensive disease management. They can also help with patient engagement and education and support. We know that atopic dermatitis is an incredibly complicated condition. You could spend literally an hour talking with families about the role of food allergies. And most of us have 10, 15 minutes tops to see patients with atopic dermatitis. And so it just is critical that whatever practice setting you're in, even if you're a solo provider, you need to figure out ways to leverage external support for educational enhancement of the visit that you're going to have with that patient. You're just not going to be able to cover it all in the time allotted. So our dermatology APPs can help with that. They can help manage the self, support the self-management. They can help with psychological support, linking our patients with additional support if need be in this realm. Similarly, continuing education and research activities. These can be improved and help maintain knowledge and skills, as you see. They can help with the participation and delivery of healthcare provider awareness and education, qualitative and quantitative research. This is all things that our dermatology APPs are helping to provide for atopic dermatitis care. And all of this sort of ends in the final common pathway of improving awareness, advocacy, education, and integrating care with primary providers, with parents, with allied physician and APP providers. And what do we try to do when we have these visits? We have to establish goals of treatment. And the critical goal is to stop inflammation. That's sometimes easier said than done. Patients with mild disease, it's fairly straightforward, sometimes can even be accomplished with mere use of emollients. That is not the case when we're talking about patients with moderate to severe disease. So goal number one is to stop inflammation. What does that mean? It means decreasing or eliminating itch. It means decreasing or eliminating redness. It means smoothing out the skin. All of those things are hallmarks of inflammation. And the initial goal of any topic dermatitis therapy is to stop that or at the very least minimize it. Then, sometimes an even bigger challenge is to prevent recurrence. Right there, built into the atopic dermatitis original diagnostic criteria by John Hannafin, authored in 1982, were four major criteria. The first one was itch, as we've talked about. The second one, family history. The third one, appropriate distribution. All of these things we've talked about. The fourth one was waxes and wanes. Right there, built into the definition of the disease, it waxes and wanes. And this can be one of the most frustrating things for parents because they oftentimes don't know why their child is good today and may be miserable tomorrow. Sometimes there are clear allergens or triggers. You can identify and eliminate, but oftentimes not. So it really can be sometimes easier to stop the inflammation initially than it can be to prevent it. So therapeutic treatment regimens should maintain or keep in mind these two goals. And then finally, both of these things have to be done safely and sustainably. Topical steroids can have side effects. Topical calcineurin inhibitors can have side effects. All of our treatments can have side effects. Sometimes even the moisturizers, the -the over-the-counter moisturizers that we are using have potential allergens in them that sometimes can be part of the problem. So we need to sort of think about all these things and treat safely and sustainably if we're going to have a successful outcome. Well, what we want to do when we first see a patient is consider the whole patient. 
We want to assess for comorbid conditions. So we've talked about a good number of these. We've talked about, does this patient have allergies? Not only that, does the patient's allergies, do the patient's allergies contribute to their atopic dermatitis? That's a really critical thing when we're just talking about allergies alone, because one out of three kids with atopic dermatitis have a food allergy, but a far smaller number actually have a single food or multiple foods that you can identify and then remove and then have that be the end of the story. Food allergies keep company and can be absolutely triggers and problems for patients with atopic dermatitis, but it's quite uncommon that they are the sole cause of any one patient's disease. Ask patients about sleep quality like we've talked about. Look for mental health and psychosocial impact. We haven't delved too much into it today, but in the last several years, there have been some really important papers that have come out looking at the role of anxiety and depression and even suicidal ideation and suicide in patients with atopic dermatitis. So we know that teens and tweens in this country and globally are pre-COVID for sure, but but certainly post-COVID have had an epidemic of depression and suicide. And we screen every 11-plus-year-old at our hospital for these things when we see them. If you then superimpose upon that something like atopic dermatitis, which is chronically itchy and for which we can't say, oh yes, we've got a cure. Here, take this and you'll be done in two weeks. That's another added burden and impact and potential for problems with mental health and psychosocial aspects of care. So ask about these things. Discuss ways to avoid flare triggers. This is, as I said, when we're talking about preventing recurrence. Yes, identify allergens. Yes, identify irritants. Yes, ask about time, timing of flares. Sometimes it's seasonal. Sometimes there are changes in bathing moisturization habits. Sometimes it's they've caught a cold and that simple immune stimulation triggers a flare. So some of these things are avoidable and some are not. But the more you can have in mind a list of things that do trigger eczema and communicate that to your parents, the more they're going to be able to approach each flare in a rational way because without knowing a list of things that can cause kids with eczema to flare, we just mentioned some of them, errors in bathing and moisturization, infections, even vaccinations, certainly not a reason not to vaccinate, but a reason to say, you know, vaccines are immune stimulation just as catching a cold is. And immune stimulation can cause a transient eczema flare. Having parents be aware of this then allows them, if that happens, to say, okay, yes, this was expected. This isn't my child having a quote-unquote allergy to the vaccine and so therefore not one to vaccinate again, or no, this isn't some food that he must have eaten at lunch that we just can't figure out and we're going to drive ourselves crazy trying, when maybe they have a much more obvious cause for that child's flare. So I think it's really, really important to sort of go through that list so parents can help with you try to avoid those flare triggers. And that's all about education. Probably the strongest evidence base there is for any treatment for atopic dermatitis is education. Nurse training programs in the UK and Europe, Germany in particular, have been extraordinarily helpful and evidence-based, but they're quite labor-intensive and not easy to generalize to the rest of the globe. But education, education, education. And this is the sorts of things that we talk about. This is sort of shared decision-making. That's such a buzzword now. It's basically, in my opinion, being a provider. Being a provider should be about shared decision-making, but it's so amazing how that's now something that's kind of come from on high that we should all try to do now. We should always have been listening carefully with nonverbal attentiveness, interactive conversation. We should always have been addressing and suggesting alternatives rather than being too dictatorial about things and not properly educating. We should always put our recommendations in writing when it's appropriate. 
appropriate so that parents can review these things in a less time-pressured way if it's a decision that carries more weight. We should always educate, including risk-benefit ratios, short-term versus long-term gains. And that gets at what oftentimes happens when I chat with parents. We talk about some of the medications which have side effects, as all medications do, and they sometimes will be daunting for parents, understandably. But then you always have to make them realize what the cost of not treating is. What are the risks and the harms of not treating? What are the risks and the harms of their child scratching themselves awake every night and potentially getting skin infections and recurrent antibiotic courses? So it's always important to contextualize these things, and that's what patient caregiver communication and education is all about. Well, let's talk a little bit about the algorithm for treating atopic dermatitis. This has evolved over the years, but from the year 2000 to 2017, that's basically when I finished my training up until 2017, there was essentially no new molecules approved for the treatment of atopic dermatitis. Since 2017, there have been some extraordinary advances, some of which we'll talk about. But the basic treatment algorithm is acute treatment for mild disease, moisturizers, avoid triggers, topical corticosteroids, topical phosphodiesterol inhibitors, there are various options. However, when you get to moderate disease, those same things apply in the sense that you may still use some of your topicals, you certainly are still moisturizing, but then you're starting to think about potentially more potent agents. You're starting to think about some of the second-line agents, the, the TCIs, the potential ruxolitinib, a new topical JAK inhibitor recently approved, bleach baths, which are nice adjunctive treatments that can treat both inflammation and prevent infection in a very safe way. And then with severe disease, more of the same, only we're going to be starting to talk about potentially phototherapy. We're going to be starting to talk about medications that have indeed been approved since 2010, like dupilumab, first approved for adults, now approved essentially for the entire age spectrum with the recent indication for six months and above just happening. Trelakinumab, another biologic medication approved for adults. Likewise, abracitinib, an oral JAK inhibitor for adults. Upatacitinib, an oral JAK inhibitor for patients 12 and older. These are all new medications, though we still have our old standbys, the systemic non immunosuppressants like cyclosporin, methotrexate, mycophenolate mofetil, azathioprine. Corticosteroids have their place, but gosh, I try never to use them if at all possible. Then we finally want to, in some patients, use adjunctive things like wet wrap therapy and even, in some cases, hospitalization is necessary. So this is sort of the evolving AD treatment algorithm. And you can look up there at that purple box and just always, 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 before you leap to a next therapy, think about non-adherence, think about steroid phobia. Is there infection? Are we sure of the diagnosis. If this is an adult, do they definitely have eczema or might they have cutaneous T-cell lymphoma? If this is a child, do they definitely have eczema or might they have a primary immunodeficiency if they're young enough for which the eczema is sort of a stalking horse? So these are important things to consider as you consider moving up the therapeutic ladder. Well, here's the sorts of things that we've been talking about right here. Number one, does the patient have moderate to severe disease? Then maybe it's appropriate for systemic therapy. Number two, what's the impact on their quality of life and their daily functioning? Number three, have other diagnoses been considered just like we were talking about? Has the patient been educated properly? Sometimes with regard to steroid phobia specifically, you'll see patients come back and you've given them a topical steroid that you think should work and they're not better. And you say, oh gosh, we should probably give you a stronger steroid. Well, if they're not better, because they were afraid of the steroids and they're just not using them, then giving them a stronger steroid is the exact wrong thing to do. So you really need to explore these things and make sure that topical therapy has been given an adequate trial, the proper diagnosis is present, and there's no barrier that just hasn't been articulated that's keeping the patient from succeeding. And if that's the case, then there we are. We're talking about potential for systemic therapies. Now, phototherapy is a potential option, but number one, it's difficult to access for many patients. It's time and labor intensive and can be expensive. And when patients 
kids are super inflamed, phototherapy is actually not a great choice. I like phototherapy to sort of stabilize and keep kids under good control after that initial inflammation has been quelled and you're trying to get them off potentially a systemic medication. Phototherapy can have a role there, but phototherapy is rarely the answer for super inflamed kids. When all of that's been gone through, then you're left with that bottom box. It's time to discuss systemic therapy with the patient. These are the things that would have been tried beforehand, topical calcineurin inhibitors, pemacrolimus, tacrolimus. Topical calcineurin inhibitors have been around about 20 years, approved in 2001 or thereabouts. Pemacrolimus is for mild to moderate disease, not the type of patient really talking about much here. Tacrolimus, on the other hand, is approved for moderate to severe disease, a weaker strength for kids 15 and younger, a stronger strength for older kids. But I've used both strengths in pretty much every age kid. These are products which have a boxed warning associated with them. So that's something to be really careful to discuss with parents, but it's a warning which we've become very familiar with as dermatologists, and really the literature has suggested that some of the things can mention the blocks warning related to skin cancer, lymphoma, some very scary things. When these products are used appropriately, there is no increased risk of these things. Well, when we've kind of gone through and cycled through that algorithm, We've treated with our topical therapy, we've considered phototherapy, and we're still having a patient who is not adequately treated. That's when we think about systemic therapies. And the first systemic therapy, FDA approved for the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis that wasn't a steroid, was this one, Pilumab. And it's an IL-4, IL-13 blocker, which has been around since 2017. Many dermatologists are very familiar with this drug now. It has been incredibly effective and life-altering for a good number of my patients. And you can see this cartoon here showing the sort of interruption of this inflammatory cascade that we talked about earlier when IL-4 and IL-13 are blocked. And this is a drug which is now approved down to six months of age for patients with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis whose disease is not adequately controlled with topical prescription therapies or when those therapies are not available. So this is a remarkable thing, a systemic medication approved down to six months of age. The most common adverse effects we see with dupilumab are injection site reactions, as you can see with any shot, essentially, as well as ocular complications, conjunctivitis. In the adult studies, about one out of 10. In my experience, that's about right. It tends to be patients who have pre-existing eye disease, either skin around the eyes or eyes themselves. Patients with atopic dermatitis, about 8% of them have ocular comorbidities to begin with, keratoconjunctivitis, to name one. And those are the patients who are at greater risk going on this medication for developing worsening conjunctivitis. So treat them carefully, be very aware and follow them up carefully, potentially even co-manage them with an ophthalmologist. The data with the younger kids has been similar to that of the older kids, but actually a little bit less conjunctivitis, which has been nice to see. Let's go through that data. This is the 6 to 12-year-old data with dupilumab, and you can see here that there was a placebo arm. There was dupilumab used at standard dosing for this age group and depending on weight, which is a subcutaneous injection of 300 milligrams once a month. And in the study, topical corticosteroids were allowed. And then you had another arm which showed a slightly different dosing regimen as well. And here you can see some of the data here. You see the graph on the left. That's just the overall population. You can see the percentage of patients there with the placebo arm at the bottom at 30%, the dupilumab arms at 70 to 67%, the overall percentage of population improving their proportion. You can see the patients achieving this metric of easy 75, which is a 75% improvement in this global severity index. You can see the patients less than 30 kilograms, similar numbers, 
greater than 30 kilograms, similar numbers. But the key thing here is to see the difference and the separation between the dupilumab arms and the placebo. The second thing is to see how relatively quickly this happens. You see the time bars there. Well before a month, you're seeing incredible reduction in the severity of disease in these dupilumab-treated patients, and that has been really nice. A way to compare this is to think about the non-steroidal options we've had before. Things like methotrexate, things like mycophenolate mofetil can sometimes take a month, six weeks to start to kick in and really help these kids. So here we've got a drug which works much, much quicker and is, in my opinion, far safer than those non-steroidal immunosuppressant medications. Well, let's talk a little bit about safety as well. You've seen the efficacy slides. Safety in the 6 to 12-year-old age group has been really good. You can obviously see no deaths in the trial, of course, and very few significant serious side effects. Here you see down here in the dupilumab arms, this is the placebo arm. Let's take a look at some of these numbers. They're really not terribly different. Nasopharyngitis, similar. Headache, similar. When you get over here and start looking at things like conjunctivitis, that's when you're going to see placebo a little bit different than the conjunctivitis seen in the treatment arm. So there's no question that that's a signal and a potential adverse effect that needs to be monitored. What has not been captured in the trials as much is some of these patients on dupilumab can get a facial erythema to 1 out of 10% in some of the post-marketing studies have shown sort of a facial erythema that occurs. And whether or not it's recurrent atopic dermatitis, contact dermatitis, seborrheic dermatitis, or something else entirely is hard to say, but do be on the lookout for that as that can sometimes be a potential barrier. Longer term, looking at this age group, this is a Liberty AD open label extension trial of patients treated with the same 200 and 300, depending on their weight, milligram dupilumab, either every other week or once monthly. And they had participated in the previous dupilumab trials. I had a good number of kids in this study at my institution. And here you can see the percentage of patients achieving IgA 0 or 1. Now you remember 0 or 1 is clear or almost clear. That's a really high bar for patients with moderate to severe disease. And you can see up to 40% 44% here at one year are clear or almost clear. That's really impressive. Likewise, you can see this percent change in the easy score extending out one year. So we've talked about the efficacy. Here's a slide that shows that it's a durable response. Anything more to tell you about the Liberty AD Preschool Infant Trial? This is when we're talking now about these even younger kids than what we were just describing, 6 to 12. Now we're talking about patients aged 6 months to 6 years, which is extraordinary that the trial is being done in the first place. This is due to some tremendous advocacy by a number of pediatric dermatologists in particular to get this on the FDA's radar screen. But here we now have this Liberty AD Preschool Infant Trial. And you're seeing this cohort 1, age 2 to 6, cohort 2, age age six months to two years. The cohort one, sub-Q dupilumab, three milligrams per kilogram, single dose, four to eight weeks, and then follow up. And then subcutaneous dupilumab, six milligrams per kilogram, single dose, four to eight weeks, follow up. And let's look at what we see. What we're trying to see here is really the pharmacokinetics. And to distill this slide is basically to say that the distribution of this drug in the very little children is very similar to that in older kids. And that's what the FDA needs to be able to pursue actual phase three studies and lead to approval of a medication. And here we're seeing some of the efficacy outcomes of this cohort, these very young children. Here's the easy scores dropping quickly. Here you can see, again, easy 50 improvement. Here you can see SCORAD scores responding very nicely in patients using the dupilumab.
And here, more efficacy outcomes. Here's patients with EZ75, and you're seeing really nice responses here. Here, you're seeing patients with their itch scores, clear reductions in all of the dupilumab arms. And then we go further and look more at this data. This is a double-blind, placebo-controlled trial with children six months to six years of age, moderate to severe, atopic dermatitis inadequately controlled, randomized one-to-one with subcutaneous dupilumab once a month. And you can see the dose varied depending on the weight, and there was a placebo arm. The primary endpoint is that clear or almost clear IgA, and some secondary endpoints looked at as well, including percent change in easy as well as ish scores. And here you can see the efficacy here. At 16 weeks, the patients treated with dupilumab, nearly 30% were clear or almost clear versus 4% of placebo. 53% achieved 75% greater overall disease improvement from baseline versus 11% for placebo. These are all really impressive numbers. 49% average improvement from baseline in itch versus 2% for placebo. You can also see some of the secondary outcomes with regard to itch, sleep, and caregiver-reported quality of life all were improved. As it happens, there was a lower rate of skin infections seen in the dupilumab arm versus placebo, and that tends to stand to reason. Classically, with some of the treatments we would use previously, they're immunosuppressants, and so we always worried about more infections and, in fact, saw more infections. Here, this is a more targeted therapy. It's not broadly immunosuppressive, so the risk of infections is lower, and not only that, because it's effective, the skin barrier is improved, and so there's less open skin, further decreasing the risk of infection. And finally, looking at safety in this cohort. Again, nasopharyngitis, roughly the same in treatment and placebo. Likewise, URIs, impetigo, higher in the placebo group, lymphadenopathy, higher in the placebo group. So these are really important data to think about as we start to think about new options that can be available for this group of patients who historically have been relatively neglected. I know for years since I finished training in 2000, it seemed like there was a new biologic medication for psoriasis that would come about just about every other week. Conversely, for atopic dermatitis, there really was nothing. Again, as I said earlier, prior to 2017, prednisone was it. Well, if you're going to start talking about these, sometimes that's going to be the end of the discussion with kids. So you really need to get ahead of needle phobia because it's real. And in order to do that, again, you're going to want to couch the benefits of the treatment versus the harms of no treatment once you've gotten past the actual safety and efficacy discussion because the parents and the child know very well what it means not to treat and what their lives are like every day. So it's important to teach coping strategies, mindfulness, deep breathing exercises, focus on those health benefits, as I mentioned. Have the child sit up. Some kids are more frightened when they have to lie down. Model calmness. This can be challenging when there's potential, a very potential chaotic scene of a child who's needle phobic. Sometimes pre-treating with acetaminophen or ice at the injection site can be really helpful. Distraction, vibratory techniques near the injection site, so-called buzzy bees, for example, can be really helpful. So these are all ways to potentially mitigate some of the risk or barrier associated with needle phobia. Well, I mentioned some of these other targeted therapies. Lebrokizumab is an IL-13 blocker. We talked about IL-4, IL-13 blocker. That's dupilumab. Lebrokizumab is specifically an IL-13 blocker. And in phase three, advocate one and two trial, looking at adults and adolescents greater than 12 years of age, this is a study that's been done and has shown really nice results comparable to dupilumab. So this is a potential option coming down the pike that's also a targeted biologic. Trelakinumab has 
has been approved by the FDA after this phase three injectra trial for adults and adolescents. It is not approved yet for the younger kids, as we've talked about with dupilumab, nemalizumab, a phase three study ongoing. Our site is one of those participating in this trial, but not yet approved for either kids or adults. That's the IL-31 blocker. Tralokinumab is another IL-13 blocker, as we've talked about. So to summarize, it's really important to incorporate the entire healthcare team when we're going to be talking about using more significant systemic therapies. This can include, obviously, the parents and the child, but also potentially advanced practice providers. And this will help us formulate optimal assessments. It'll help us manage our time, ideally, because we don't have enough of it when dealing with patients with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. And this is all going to lead to better outcomes. It's critical to engage in shared decision-making, as I've talked about. Discuss the options. Let the parents the child verbalize their questions and their concerns. List the potential impact of treating versus non-treating and weighing risks and benefits carefully, particularly with these newer medicines, which haven't had quite as long a track record and therefore give us all a little bit more pause and emphasize even more the importance of shared decision-making and discussions with parents about the appropriateness with their particular child. Talk about needle phobia. Use distraction techniques. Talk about ways to mitigate all of that up front. And then finally, we've spent some time talking about a variety of medications that have been approved, some not yet, but dupilumab in particular is the one that's been around the longest since 2017, and now the only one that's approved down for patients as young as six months of age with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. The other therapies in development include both other biologics as well as oral JAK inhibitors as well. So thank you very much for joining us for this presentation. I hope it has been helpful as we've talked about some of the important new advances in the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in the pediatric population. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WVA 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals.